We'll open your Bibles to Psalm 50. We continue making our way through this incredible collection of wisdom literature. And we have um, been looking at some of the psalms that were attributed to the sons of Korah. Today in Psalm 50, this is the first psalm that is attributed to Asaph. There is a collection of psalms a little bit later on that are consistently his. I think there's seven or eight in a row that are attributed to him. But this is the first one that is attributed to Asaph. Asaph was a contemporary of David. And according to First Chronicles 6, he was the chief singer among the Levites. So he, like the sons of Korah, had a very significant and prominent role in leading the Israelites in their worship. So the setting of this psalm, even though he is a contemporary of David, is not known. Is not known. It may be centered around one of the major festivals when all of God's people would journey to Jerusalem for one of the prescribed feasts. And there are many who think that this probably centers around a renewal of the covenant of Israel and what they had agreed to do as the people of God that began all the way back in the days of Moses. So in many respects, this is a renewal covenant for the nation of Israel. The psalm really has a singular theme, and it is about loyalty to God. So loyalty as opposed to formalism, loyalty as opposed to hypocrisy. So as we think about what those words mean to us, and as we think about what those words mean in regards to our love of God, our worship of God, our faithfulness to God, either being in a category of formalism, very impersonal, or hypocritical, which is very fake, this is a very challenging course of Scripture to go through. So this psalm is unique in the sense that it has more of a prophetic nature than most of the other psalms do. It contains features of a visible manifestation of God, which is called a theophany. There is an accusation, there is a warning, and there is an invitation to repent, which is very unique among the collection of the psalms. It's fairly lengthy, and so we're going to look at this psalm in the three sections that will constitute our outline. So number one in our outline is God summons his people. So we're going to read together all at once, verses 1 through 6, and here's what God's Word says to us. The Mighty One, God the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shone forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before Him, and it is very tempestuous around Him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So in this first section, which is in some regards an introduction, we see what was mentioned as a theophany. The theophany is a physical manifestation of God. And so in this, we see what the psalmist describes in some respects as a picture of God. It tries to describe in human terms this invisible God that created the universe. So number one, he is the mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun 
to its setting. So these three divine titles make it very, very clear to the nation of Israel exactly who it is that is speaking, and it is none other than Yahweh. It's a very unique collection of divine titles put together in one sentence to draw attention to the person, the God Yahweh, that the nation of Israel has promised to follow from the beginning of the days of their covenant. So this mighty one, this God, draws attention to the position of God as judge and Lord. It identifies him as not only judge, but as the covenant God of Israel. It's two sides of the same coin. He is their God, but he is also their God of the covenant. And there is insinuated within this covenant, this relationship that will continue to exist, which cannot be separated. So he has spoken and is summoning the heavens and the earth to testify against his people. So as God comes to judge and as he summons his people and he is going to hand down a threat of judgment against them, I'm reminded of this. Judgment is never a very popular theme. Nor is it a very joyful experience for people in general. How do you like to be judged? Well, not at all. I don't want anybody judging me. I want to be left alone, live my own life, do my own thing. Who are you to judge me? And because it is so deeply ingrained into our sinful human nature, we can sometimes say, God, why would you judge me? Aren't I good enough the way that I am? Aren't I better than all the people around me? Think about this. Think about your judgment when it's time for your annual evaluation with your employer. Think about the judgment that comes when you're asked to give answers back on a test that will judge your knowledge of a particular subject. Can you remember those kinds of things? I remember employee evaluations. Your hands get a little sweaty. Your stomach gets a little unsettled. Your mind begins to wonder what's going to happen. What's going to be the criticism? What's going to be the complaint? Am I going to have a job at the end of this? People tend to not like any form of judgment. And so when God comes to judge his people, I am exactly confident that it is a very unwanted and a very unwelcomed experience. Yet God has that prerogative And when God comes to judge, rather than becoming stiff-necked or boastful or prideful, we need to be humble, we need to be compliant, and we need to be willing to listen to what it is that God has to say. Number two, He is glorious. This God, this Mighty One, this Lord, is glorious. Verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. Now, we know that Zion is described to be the city of God. It is described here as being the perfect city. And the reason that it is described as the perfect city is because it is believed to be or understood to be the place where God dwells. Wherever God dwells, there exists the perfection of beauty because of who He is. And it is from this perfect city that the glory of his brilliance shines forth for all to see. Think about what this means in terms of the New Testament. What did Jesus say 
when he talked to his believers, he said that you are to be the light of the world. You are to be a light on a hill. You are to be the light that illuminates the darkness of the world around us. There is to be such a glory of the Lord that shines forth from our lives and from our church that it should dispel the darkness and identify the source of the glory, not necessarily the city of Zion, but the presence of God amongst His people. Now, we think about this and we say, well, yeah, that's asking a lot, isn't it? Well, you're exactly right, it is. But that's the expectation, is that we would fulfill the responsibilities and the obligations and the expectations that God has for us so that His glory shines forth for a darkened world to see. Number three, He comes to speak. We see this in verse three. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before Him. And it is very tempestuous around him. So God is not going to keep silent in his evaluation of his people. He wasn't going to do it then. He isn't going to do it now. God isn't missing anything. He isn't letting anything go. This omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Lord sees it all, knows it all, and nothing is hidden from his sight. And in his perfect timing... He comes to speak. And make no mistake about it, when God comes to speak as judge, it isn't going to be pleasant. This is emphasized as God coming as the judge with the phrase, fire devours before him. So the picture image of fire devouring before him is a reminder of God's revelation of himself In the book of Deuteronomy, all the way back in Deuteronomy 5.4, we read this. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of fire. So when God came in fire in Deuteronomy 5, he did so to reveal his will for the people. And in the revelation of the will for the people, in this instance, God gave the Ten Commandments. So God was coming. He was speaking in the midst of fire to communicate his will to the people. He's going to do the same thing in terms of judgment as he comes to speak to the nation of Israel. So God is going to come to speak his will, but he is also going to come to judge them, which is consistent with another image of fire devouring before him. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3, after the giving of the commandments and after Israel's willingness to obey all that God has said. And here's what it says. Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. So in this instance, God is coming and fire devours before him as he's going to give his will. And the fire that devours before him is his defeat of the enemies of Israel as he is going to cross over the Jordan River and he is going to wipe out the enemies of God and he is going to give to the nation the promised inheritance of a land that is their own, which is the fulfillment 
of the physical covenant that God made with his people. God was coming to judge his enemies. He would destroy them and give his people their physical inheritance. And in this instance, he's going to come to speak his will and to judge the same enemies of God, even though they may not be Philistines. And as we're going to learn later on, they are actually Israelites. God is coming to speak his will And it contains judgment for his people. Number four, he summons. Verse four, he summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Now we know what a summons is in our own vernacular. It is a subpoena, right? And so if a a court official comes to you and issues you a subpoena, you have a legally binding requirement to appear before the judge For whatever the hearing is going to be. In the same way, God is issuing a subpoena to his people and he is calling the heavens and the earth to testify against his people. That's what it means when it says that he is summoning summoning the whole earth to judge his people. So this is also taken from the book of Deuteronomy where the heavens and the earth were witnesses to Israel's covenant commitment to God. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. After they have agreed to the covenant terms, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. So the heavens and the earth are going to be his witnesses again and his people are going to be the defendants. So at the initial witnessing of the heavens and the earth, they heard the nation of Israel say, Yes, Lord, we will do all that you have commanded to do. And in this instance of judgment with the nation of Israel, the same heavens who were witnesses of that covenant agreement are now going to come and be a part of the prosecution against the defendants who have not upheld their end of the covenant. Verse 5 says, Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So God makes it very, very clear that he is going to summons his own people for this purpose of judgment. And the last thing that we see in this section of the theophany or of the introduction, number 5, is that he is righteous. Verse 6 And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So the heavens, the witnesses, are declaring the righteousness of the judge, the impartiality, the correctness, the rightness, the justness of whatever it is God is going to say. Sometimes when judgment comes against us, we say, that's not right, that's not fair. You misunderstood, right? Don't we say those things? We want to defend ourselves. We want to escape some of the blame or responsibility for whatever this thing might be. So these same witnesses are going to declare that God is righteous and God is going to use these same witnesses to help witnesses to help prosecute his people. So in today's litigious culture, this world, this would sound like a stacked deck, right? I mean, you're the judge, and you've called all the witnesses, and you're going to render a verdict. I don't think that sounds very fair. But who are we talking about as the judge? Well, he's the righteous one. He is the Lord. He is God. 
He is the mighty one. So the picture that is created is that Israel has zero wiggle room in what is about to be said because of who God is and because of the accuracy of the witnesses who are going to testify against them. Now, what it, at this point, is very, very easy for us to stop and say, yeah, but this is the nation of Israel, right? This isn't me. I wasn't alive back then. This doesn't apply to me. I'm not guilty of the things that are going to be mentioned in this psalm. So, I guess I've escaped the judgment of God, right? Well, that's a very wrong perspective to take as we look at God's Word and what He may be saying to us through this example of the nation of Israel in this time and in this passage. So, number two in our outline, we're going to see the accusation against the superficial So the accusation against the superficial is very difficult to flesh out. So what's important for us to understand is that since this is very likely a part of a covenant renewal ceremony, Israel is being judged on how well it has kept the covenant. So let's make this modern for you and I today. When you and I came to Christ... And we acknowledged our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And we asked Him to forgive us of our sin. And we made a commitment. God, I'm going to live for you. You are my Savior and my Lord. Right? Two sides of the same coin. You can't separate salvation from Lordship. You just can't do it. In Israel's life, you can't separate the covenant agreement with how well you have upheld the covenant. So even though we would like to excuse ourselves because this example is given in the form of keeping a covenant, what we can ask ourselves is this, how well have I made you, how well have I allowed you to be the Lord of my life? In some things, in most things, in everything, in the big things, in very little things, how well do we acknowledge that He is the true Lord of our life? So this covenant for the nation of Israel began with Abraham, was later formalized under Moses, and the most basic element of the Mosaic covenant is very simply the Ten Commandments. That's where it all began. That was the principle for how the nation of Israel was to live in relationship to God, and it was the principle for how they were to live in relationship with one another. Right? The Ten Commandments. So we could say this in New Testament terms. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. We can whittle all of Christianity into those two commands. Right? In many facets we can do that. So in a similar way, this covenant that God has made with Israel, and Israel has agreed to, is in its most basic form, found in the Ten Commandments. And the chief commandment is Obviously, the very first one, Exodus 20, verses 2 through 5. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. You see, the central lordship 
posture for us is loving Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. So these commandments centered on Israel's relationship with God and on Israel's relationship with one another. And as we have read throughout Israel's history, how good of a job did they generally do? Not so good. And so there was this constant need for judgment, for a renewal of the covenant, for a reminder of the covenant, for hopefully an awakening of the glory of this God that has brought you out of slavery, the glory of the God that has brought us out of our bondage to sin, and the rightful response to this great God who has done for us what we can never do for ourselves, what is done for the nation of Israel that they can never accomplish on their own. So we need to be very careful that in our pride, that in our self-righteousness, that in our own self-defense, we don't lose sight of the need to be authentic before the Lord and acknowledge that He is our righteous judge and He is going to righteously judge us on the basis of how well we have allowed Christ to be the Lord of our life. So God has given His commandments. And then later through Moses, He gave very specific instructions about the sacrificial system that is going to be an instrument to help Israel express their love and their trust and their devotion and their commitment to the Lord. This system would remind them of God's love and God's provision. It would offer for them opportunity to express love back to God and to make appeasement for sin through sacrifices. So it is through these sacrifices that God would accept them, would bless them, and would use these to remind His people of their need for Him and of His love for them. So the sacrificial system was designed to reveal Israel's sin, of their constant need of cleansing, of their constant need of God's provision, of God's constant forgiveness, of God's constant guidance. The sacrificial system was designed to bring them close to God and show them the true value of the relationship they have in this covenant with this great God. So it was very common in ancient cultures and in ancient customs to have some system of sacrifice. This wasn't unique to Israel. It wasn't invented by God for Israel. There were many, many different cultures that adopted some form of a sacrificial system. The difference was that in these other cultures, these sacrifices were considered to be essential to these gods, little g, and they provided something that these little g gods needed. So what does God need? What does God need from us that we can give to Him? Well, in these false religions, you had to give God these things because He needed them. Some of these sacrificial systems were total abominations. You think about the judgment that God enacted upon some of the peoples in the days of Israel's conquest. Well, it's been noted by historians that some of these cultures offered babies as a part of the sacrifice to appease the fertility God so that they could continue to produce offspring. Well, how sick and twisted is that? But God needed that so that 
others could give birth to children. So this sacrificial system was very, very twisted in other cultures. And, and so what, it, what appeared to happen is that in the nation of Israel, they had either adopted some of this misunderstanding or they had come to believe that what they were going to offer to God through sacrifice was somehow needed by God. God needed these sacrifices. They were essential to God's existence. They were important for God's work. And it's totally upside down. The sacrificial system is to, develop, is to reveal to man his intense need for God. And it got inverted to the fact that God needed these things for man. So this is the accusation against the superficial. And here, the Lord testifies. Beginning in this section, we're going to read this as we go through it. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, the great I am, your God, the God of your covenant. So God doesn't really need the heavens and the earth to testify. He's going to do it all by himself. But he wants the nation of Israel to know that the heavens and earth are ready and willing and able to verify all that he is about to say. So the phrase, hear, O my people, should remind us of the Shema, the great declaration in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And through that Shema, they are instructed to teach their children and their children's children about the great works of God and the commandments of God and the covenant obligations, etc., etc. So the Shema is a call to the nation of Israel to love God first with all their heart and soul and mind. And it is very, very probable that when the nation of Israel heard this, it was a reminder back to the initial days of the covenant when God would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So there is the reminder of the covenant. I am God. I am your God. And so the entirety of verses 8 through 15 deals with the superficial nature of Israel's sacrifices to God. The first thing that we see here is God says, Your sacrifices are fine. Well, that's good to know, right? Verse 8, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. There was a constant need. There were almost daily sacrifices that were made to God because there was a constant need to remind the people of their sin, to remind people of God's forgiveness, and to deepen the relationship between God and His people. So Israel was faithful to honor their covenant obligation through these sacrifices, and God was fine with that. But God goes beyond seeing the exterior, and God goes to see the hearts of those that are offering to Him. So, in a common explanation, God sees our gathering, God sees our singing, God sees our reading, God sees our giving, God sees our serving. God sees the exterior, but He sees beyond that. He sees into the depth of our heart. So for God to summon the heavens and the earth to testify against Israel, it is obvious that this wasn't a minor problem, this sacrificial issue, this superficiality of it. It was likely prevalent within the nation 
as a whole. So this was likely a constant problem for Israel, as we see articulated in Isaiah 29:13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me, and the reverence for me consists of tradition learned by road. You know what that means? You're just going through the motions. You're just a people who follows religious tradition. There's not one sentiment of authentic love for me in anything that you do in your sacrificial system. They have moved from the initial covenant obligation into the days of David and afterwards into the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. And we see the same recitation of judgment. You've not fulfilled your covenant obligation. Jesus repeats these words of Isaiah as he issues this indictment against the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. He virtually repeats what Isaiah says. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Nothing had changed in the nation of Israel from the beginning of the covenant to the appearance of Jesus as the Messiah All of that time in between, Israel struggled with fulfilling their covenant obligation. So let's ask this question. What is happening in the church from the time of Jesus' resurrection until His second coming? How well is the church honoring their Lordship covenant obligation to the Lord God Almighty? How well are we doing? How well are you doing individually? You see, that's the nature of the judgment that God brings to us In his word. It isn't about the nation of Israel. It isn't about what we do as a part of our religious duty. It is about what is at the heart of our relationship with God. Duty and obligation and checking off a spiritual checklist. Or is it an authentic, deep felt love for the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength? Well, it's a progressive journey for each of us, right? And so these passages are designed to help us wake up and recognize the need for a continuation in the journey. There isn't to be this long rest stop that lasts for weeks and months and years where we just kind of sit back and wait. We are to continually be pursuing this authentic relationship with God. So Israel's worship through sacrifices was formal, not personal. And it had devolved into something where God needed this stuff from man and not something that man needed to do in worship of the great God who had provided for their deliverance. So God says, your sacrifice or your service is fine, but I don't really need them. Verses 9 through 13. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. Here's the key. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of male goats? So again, these ancient cultures and customs believed that their little g-gods needed physical nourishment from them, and so they would sacrifice these animals and provide nourishment to their gods. So God states very clearly that He doesn't need any fruit from man. First of all, He owns it all. If God were hungry, He would just pluck something out of the field or out of the sky or out of the ocean and He would devour it. But God is not a person in need of nourishment. He is a spirit 
who desires for his covenant people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Sacrifices were designed to constantly expose Israel to their sin, their need for cleansing. It was, a, it was a reminder of God's faithfulness to forgive them, a constant provision to meet their need. And they had lost sight of that, and they had twisted it into something that it was not designed to be. God is not in need of anything from us. Let me tell you very carefully. God doesn't need your money. He will carry out the kingdom's work apart from anything that we give. But God desires that we give to Him out of love for Him. We need to to give to Him because we need to express to Him our love, our trust, our faithfulness, and our willingness to fulfill Lordship in our lives. God doesn't need to hear us sing, but we need to express from the depth of our heart a love for all that God has done, a recognition for the glory that God is in His being. So in our worship, these become opportunities for us to express our love for Him, to acknowledge His worth to us, to express our desire to honor and obey Him, and a desire to be more closely connected to Him. Now, this doesn't mean that because God doesn't quote-unquote need this, and God just desires that we give this to Him, that our gathering isn't important, because it is. God has instructed His people to gather regularly to worship Him. It doesn't mean that you go out and worship God Sunday on the golf course or on the lake or in some other place. We should be in God's house with God's people expressing corporately our love for Him and our worship of Him because we need to do that for ourselves. Don't think for a minute that God needs anything from us. He simply desires our thankfulness. Verse 14 and 15. God says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And look at this. I shall rescue you, deliver you, and you will honor me. So this call, this expression of a desire for our thankfulness, is a call to repentance for the superficial. It is a call to recapture that which is missing, and that is an authentic love and adoration of this God who has provided deliverance. This thank offering acknowledges our absolute dependency upon God, and it expresses our need for His grace and His mercy in our lives. It is in this posture that we come before Him humbly, expressing dependence. And when we do that, when we give to Him in the form of our sacrifice or service, the truth of our love for Him, it becomes an outward indication of our inner loyalty to God and obedience to His covenant demands. You see, when you come to God and the offering plate is passed, and you say, God, accept this as a thanks for all you've done for me, all the many, many ways you've blessed me. I'm so undeserving. I give this trusting that you will continue to supply all that I need. I give this to express my love for you. I give this as a desire to be a part of building your kingdom in this world. 
God, I worship you today to express my love for you, to express my need for you. God, I serve you today as a sign of my inner devotion to you, to sacrifice of myself, to do that which is uncomfortable for me or is inconvenient because you are worth it. You see, when we serve the Lord that way, when we give to the Lord that way, we don't look for any external recognition or adulation, we know that God knows and God sees and God is honored and God is glorified apart from what anybody else says or does in response to that. It is through this type of loyalty in our worship and service to Him that we will greater appreciate the deliverance that He has provided through the cross and it's a greater appreciation of the future deliverance that God will provide for us through His constant presence in our lives. So God doesn't need what we give to Him. God doesn't need our service to Him. But we need these things in our lives to show our loyalty to an ever faithful God. Now, number three in our outline as we look at the last portion of this psalm, it is the accusation against the artificial. So we saw the superficial, and now we're going to see the artificial. So this is a very, there's a very prominent shift in the final part of this psalm, what started as a judgment against, against the nation of Israel's faulty sacrificial understanding and an exhortation to return to him, now it turns into an outright confrontation to the nation of Israel for their false profession of him and the impending judgment that is awaiting them. So here they are called the wicked, Yet they are still within the covenant community. He's not talk, God's not talking about the wicked world. He is calling His people. There's no indication that there is a shift to another people group. This is the same covenant people that were, fault, that were guilty of faulty, faulty, superficial, sacrificial system. Here now we have the artificial worshipers of God. So where the first group was guilty of formalism, which lacked a personal, heartfelt, sacrificial offering, this group is wildly hypocritical and are false followers of God. So within Israel, they believed they could go through the motions of sacrifice and service and somehow satisfy God's requirement. Do you think that's a problem in the modern church today? Do you think there are people who can say, well, God, I've been in church 40 weeks of every year for the last 25 years, and I've given X thousands of dollars every year to support this church thing that I go to, and I do what I can when it's convenient for me. There are most definitely people who rely upon that as a means for finding satisfaction within God's righteous requirements. So as God is now going to confront the artificial followers, the first thing that we see here is this, they talk the talk. Verse 16, but to the wicked of this covenant community, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Now this has in mind the second Commandment, you shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? It is a false profession. It is articulating something outwardly that is not true inwardly. It is those who falsely profess Christ as Lord and Savior to gain acceptance into the church, into a group, into something, but their heart is really not in it. So the statutes and covenant 
are indicative of what God has said. It is his word, his instructions, his commands, everything that God has told us about who he is and about how we are to live. And so God says, what right do you have to repeat these things out of your mouth? You have taken my covenant in your mouth with great artificiality. You are a false follower. So these are people who talk about God. They talk about his commands. They talk about his goodness and faithfulness. But it's only lip service. There is no personal connection. There is no personal commitment to these things that God has provided for his covenant people. Externally, they were Jews. By every external marker, they walked, they talked about Talk to talk, right? They did those things they were supposed to do. And as people evaluated them, they looked like they were the real deal. But because God looks at the heart, he knows that they are inwardly not Jews. They wanted nothing to do with obeying God. Jesus constantly confronted the Pharisees with their hypocritical lives several hundred years later when he said this in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So within the nation of Israel, just like in the church today, there are people who look righteous on the outside. They talk the talk. They reflect the people that are around them. And as Greg and I were talking last night, they've got one foot firmly entrenched in the world, and they've got another foot in the church trying to have the best of both worlds. And God says it don't work like that. There is no authenticity in who you are and in what you proclaim. You talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. Verse 17, For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. So when it says you hate discipline, that word discipline is a synonymous term for God's instruction, commandment, expectations, etc. And so God says you hate those things, you immediately put my instruction behind you. And when you put something behind you, figuratively you are saying, I want nothing to do with that. That has no bearing on my life. That means nothing to me. I'm going to walk forward away from it. And I'm going to leave it in the past behind me. They, they say that they want to be followers of God, but they don't follow through with that in the lives that they live. They want to be as religious as they need to be in an attempt to satisfy God. But they also want to live lives that allow them to satisfy their sinful evil desires. So there's three examples that we see in the psalm that is given here. So first one is friendship with the wicked. Now these may or may not be within the covenant community. There's no articulation of that there's no identification of that but verse 18 says when you see a thief you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers now you say i don't hang out with thieves i don't hang out with adulterers i guess i'm off the hook right well the indictment is against the friendship that the covenant community has with those who are outside of the covenant community this has in mind the seventh and the eighth commandments which is, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. So the psalmist doesn't say that they were thieves 
or that they were adulterers, but these were the people that they approved of, and these were the people that they hung around with. So what I would say to you is that this is a fairly duplicitous life. There is this desire to be friends with the worst that the world has to offer and still pretend like we are part of this religious community. How inconsistent can that really be? Well, James 4, 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what does the child of God do when he is running around with people who are thieves and people who are adulterers? Well, the, the, the covenant person of God says, that's wrong. You can't do that. I can't be a part of that. I don't want to be around that. I love you and I'll pray for you, but I can't be your friend if this is the kind of life that you're going to live. I cannot be a friend with someone who is so deeply entrenched with the world because God says friendship with the world is hostility towards him. So if your best friends have nothing to do with Jesus or the church, and have no desire to do anything that would be a part of glorifying God or honoring God, you have to ask yourself, how valuable is this friend in my life? How influential is this friend to me? Is this a friend that I am, I am actively evangelizing? Or is this someone that I just want to be a part of because it might bring something good in my life? Because they know people I don't know. They know people I want to get to know. I know that when... People come to Christ, they often fear, am I going to lose friends over this? Am I going to become ostracized because of this? Am I going to be ridiculed because of this? Is there going to be strain and tension in my family because of this? And the answer to that question is, probably so. And that's all your friends and all your family are devoted followers of Christ. You're most likely going to have to make some very difficult choices. So the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to leave behind worldly friends in pursuit of the glorious God who's provided for our deliverance? Well, the obvious question is, yes, it is. So these are people who go to worship and talk about God's word, but they live a very different life outside the church. They're Sunday Christians and they're heathens the other six days of the week. So stealing and adultery are very clear violations of the Ten Commandments. But there are many within the alleged family of God that can justify or rationalize either of these activities. Think about this. Within the church today, adultery can be justified or rationalized because you just don't understand how bad it is. You just don't understand how hard it is. You don't understand how unhappy I am. You don't understand how much I feel like I deserve that. You don't understand how much I believe that God has brought us together. You know what? I will tell you this. God is never going to bring you into an adulterous relationship. Never. He's never going to do that. Why? Because God said in the very beginning, you shall not commit adultery. But we learn how to justify and rationalize because we want to defend and excuse our life of sin. So truth has become relative to what I think or what I agree with, not what God has said. Second example of here, mouths of evil, verses 19 and 20. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Now, if you thought you're off the hook with the adultery and the stealing, you're back on the hook with what we say out of our mouths. This has in mind, obviously, the ninth commandment. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So rather than speaking things that glorify God and edify others, these wicked are guilty of speaking lies and speaking falsehood, of framing deceit. They use their words to deceive others and to manipulate others for their own benefit. They slander their own family, and obviously they probably slander others. So in their own defense, they may may say things like, well, you know, it was the heat of the moment, I didn't really mean that. They might say, well, you know, it's just a little white lie, it didn't really hurt anybody. Or they might even say, yeah, I said that, so what? What are you going to do about it? What difference does it make? You see varying levels of rebelliousness in how we deal with what we say to others and what we say about others. And so let me add this. Don't say anything about anybody else that you're not willing to say if they were standing right there with you. Because if you can't say what you're about to say in the presence of the person you're going to talk about, you're likely gossiping, potentially slandering, very clearly disobeying God. Our words are powerful. They have the ability to build up or to tear down. And Jesus took this principle that we see here in the Psalms, and he drove it very deeply into the hearts of man when he says, in Matthew 12:34, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So when you and I are speaking hurtful words, slanderous words, judgmental words, we're speaking out of that part of our heart that is not yet redeemed. It's out of the depth of our heart that exposes our need for continuing in our journey. It is speaking from that which is inconsistent with who we are as the children of God and is very clearly disobedient. To, God, to what God wants for us. So when we speak those kinds of things, when we gossip, when we slander, when we libel, we're speaking out of what is truly in our heart. And it exposes to us the need we have for repentance and for God's deliverance, which He is most willing to give to us. Our hearts are to be filled with the love of God and the joy that He brings. In Ephesians 4.29, we read this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the needs of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Think about what that means. We need to pray, God, would you convict me before I say anything? Does it edify? Is it wholesome? Is it pleasing to you? And if we can't check that box, we ought to just zip the lip and not say anything at all. place might be a little quieter. That's okay. If it brings greater glory and honor to God and greater obedience from me, then I want to say a lot less. But remember, what we say is birthed in our heart. And even though we may not say it, it's still in our heart. And it exposes to us our need for continual growth in our walk with God. Third thing that we see, third example, God, excuse me, believing God is not concerned. So this artificial follower believes that God is not at all concerned with how they're living and what they're doing and what they're saying. Verse 21, these things you have done and I kept silence. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. So to this point, in the nation of Israel, God has not acted upon these wicked, artificial believers. And their false assumption is, is that God is not bothered by it because he hasn't disciplined us for it. So obviously it's not that big of a deal, right? 
wrong. God sees it all, knows it all. And in his perfect timing, God is going to act. So the worst assumption that these artificial followers can make is that God is like them. Not righteous, not glorious, not perfect, not beyond our ability to even describe. But God is just like me. He does like me, thinks like me, he approves what I do. So you and all, you and I all have a sense of normal, right? I think it's normal to do this. I think it's normal to go there. I think it's normal to not do these kinds of things. We have a sense of normal about everything, right? What we tend to do is we tend to impose that sense of normal on other people. I'll give you an example. We didn't necessarily think this was normal, but Marcy and I thought that it was the right thing for us to do to homeschool our kids. But we didn't impose that on anybody. We tried very, very carefully not to impose that on anybody because that was our own particular conviction. But we have this tendency to impose our views on other people. Our expectations on others are what we think, what we like, what we prefer. That becomes our standard. Not what God has said, but what we think and what we prefer. So this relates into how we think others should drive and how we think others should dress and what music we think others should go to and what music we think others should avoid and what things... We, we impose that upon other people and we do that without our even knowing it. If we aren't very careful, we can impose this idea of what is normal upon the God who rules over us. God... I deserve this. God, that's not fair. God, you should go get them. God, you should do. If we're not careful of how we impose our sense of normal on other people, we can become guilty of imposing our sense of, new, our sense of normal upon what we think God should or shouldn't do. God makes it very, very clear here. He's not missed a thing. And he isn't anything like them. I will reprove you. Reprove you. My mouth's getting tired. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. It doesn't say how God is going to do it. It doesn't say when is God, God is going to do it. But God is going to reprove them. He is going to bring discipline upon them. And he is going to judge them. So here's the key. This is where we see the gospel message, even tucked away in this part of the psalm, is there is a warning. The warning is destruction. Verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces... And there will be none to deliver. I want you to think about that for a moment. Now, I like to watch nature shows. I'm going very slow, very long, I'm sorry. I like to watch nature shows. And sometimes there is this jungle creature who just annihilates prey. And it's ugly. It is just appalling to see what happens when something has been torn to pieces. Here God is saying to these people who are part of his covenant community, because they are artificial in their following of him, that I will tear you into pieces and there will be none to deliver. His judgment will be swift and ferocious and there will be none of the wicked that will be spared. But there is hope. That hope is found in repentance. Verse 23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me and to him who orders his way aright 
I shall show the salvation of God. There's the gospel. Even in your superficiality, even in your artificiality, if you will just repent, then I will come and deliver you. I will provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself. I, the great glorious God, will cover your sin. I will forgive you. I will restore you. I will bring you to myself. And you will be a part of my eternal kingdom. So this is a very clear call to reconsider who God is. It's a very clear call to reconsider what it is that pleases Him. And it's a call for us to regain a life of humility and dependency upon Him. You know, a lot of times people hear messages like this and they say, God, how I thank You that I'm not like the really, really bad people. God, I thank You that I'm not like that pastor who was publicly shown out to be an adulterer. God, I thank You that I'm not like that sorry neighbor down the road there. But we never seem to be willing to acknowledge our own guilt before the Lord as He evaluates our commitment to Him as Savior and Lord. There is no perfect in Christ. There is always going to be sin within our lives. But we are not to give ourselves to it. We are not to pretend like it's not a big deal. We are to continually come to the Lord recognizing who He is, what He desires, and give to Him what it is He desires from us, a life of humility and dependence. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank You that You are a gracious and a merciful God. Where would we be apart from that? God, we thank You that You're a long-suffering God. We thank You that You are a patient God. But we know that we will not escape the hand of judgment when we walk in rebellion to You. God, we pray that you would hear your words of conviction. We pray that we would hear your call to us to repent, to give to you what it is you truly desire, an offering of thanksgiving for the God that you are. God, we pray that you would set us free from the sin that so easily entangles us. We know you've done that in our position. We pray that you would help us to appropriate that in our practice, to be victorious over those things that we know are not pleasing to you. We pray that you'd give us a greater desire to love you and honor you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to him.